Hello and welcome to the Ghosts of Lincoln podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hatch, and I'd like to tell you all a scary story about where I'm from. You know how when you're a kid, there's always that one super nice park in your town that's just more than a little bit better than the one that's right in your neighborhood? Not the park by your house. Not that one. Not the one that you can walk to and the one that has those beams that are basically splinter pinatas that burst all over your hands like you just wrestled a porcupine when you're grabbing onto them during a game of tag. Not the one with that metal slide that burns the cheeks of your ass like you just sat on a George Foreman grill with nothing to protect you but Victoria and her secrets. No, I'm talking about the good one. The one that you have to get into the car to get to or get permission to ride your bike down to in the summer. The one that still has painted monkey bars, no chips, and then has those soft black cushion things on the ground that are probably some space age material that is crafted solely to minimize broken tailbones when your kid inevitably ass plants while shouting out, Hey Dad, watch this! That's Antelope Park in Lincoln, Nebraska. It's the nice one. And it's also haunted. So let's throw another log on our digital campfire, huddle close together, and somebody pass the damn s'mores. It's midnight now, and I'm going to tell you about the woman in white. This is a What the Husk podcast production, and this is the Ghosts of Lincoln podcast, episode two. There's a two-lane cement bike path that runs alongside Antelope Park, just to the north and a little to the east, between Normal Boulevard, some scattered pines, and parallel to the low-slung creek that meanders around down inside the fortified man-made ravine that's been uncomfortably swollen by all the rain we've gotten in the past few months. It's the creek that gives the park its name, Antelope. And while you won't see any antelope this far urban, occasionally wildlife will follow that siren song of water far enough into the city to be seen. Most famously, a young buck wandered up into the commons area of my high school, running past the instantly deflated machismo of our entire varsity football team as they screeched like BTS groupies getting a front row ticket. There's another bike path just to the south, a control C and a control V pasted onto the opposite side of the park. Same width, same style. They split at Antelope Park with one heading in a gentle curve to the southwest and the other heading southeast until it hits the dam and the equally at capacity Holmes Lake. I spent hours and miles and many carefully monitored digital minutes on both of these paths in my teenage years. From the early morning training runs in the smeared on air of August to the crisp fall days when summer finally starts to loosen up its fists in the latter stages of September. 
Lincoln High track and field and the cross country team use these metropolitan arteries as the lifeblood of our mileage base. I ran past Antelope Park in the mornings. After slogging through a C-plus in my 11th grade pre-cal class in the afternoons, and occasionally on my insanely late night runs when I was running in college for Wichita State. All of this is to say that I know Antelope Park, the place, the times, the way it looks and the way it feels, how it smells there when the leaves start to glow like Midas ran his fingers across the branches of the trees, how long you can throw fireworks into the bed of the creek before someone calls the cops. How the monkey bars felt in my nine-year-old hands back when my rotator cuffs wouldn't immediately mutiny at the thought of holding my entire body weight. But when I was running past, my eyes were on the path, my watch, my dreams of Olympic glory. And when I was playing, I was a little too raucous, too wild, too worried about being tagged or having my flag captured, too concerned about being the fastest to climb the closest slide. I wasn't listening, or feeling. I was a guest there, and a frequent one, but it wasn't home to me like it is to this next legend. The Spirit of Antelope Park In the Guide to the Ghosts of Lincoln, the story is told about a guy named Marty and a girl named Gay, two young lovers who had just finished their penultimate year in high school at Southeast High School here in Lincoln, Nebraska. They were heading to a local park on a summer night. It was early June in Lincoln, Nebraska, and warmer than normal. The kind of thick night that hangs onto your skin, the humidity clinging like a sweatshirt that you grabbed a little too soon out of the dryer and then pulled over your head. The two had been arguing, since they were young, I'm sure it was about something... Let me check my notes here. That's right, stupid. And they were looking for a place to metaphorically and literally cool off. The park, often a favorite spot of theirs to catch a breeze and not get caught catching anything else, seemed like the perfect place. Marty and his 1960s bay were about to get out of his Chevy Corvair. He was just shutting off the car and parking next to the pavilion in a small parking lot behind the local park caretaker's house. You know that moment when you've been driving with the windows down, the music up, and your body is still vibrating like that last vibrato thrum that passes through a guitar string? You're not moving anymore, but your body still feels like it is. And all of this sensory overload, the radio, the engine of the car, the fight between you and your boo-thang, the lights, they all disappear like a snap from an expert magician clicking his silly-ass little wand. In this moment, Gay and Marty saw something. The bush directly in front of their car spasmed wildly, shaking. Gay was taken aback, immediately unnerved. Marty, eh, not so much. He urged her to grab their blankets and get out of the car, blaming it on those giant mutant rat weasels that local biologists sometimes refer to as opossums. Having convinced her of her relative safety, and having clearly never watched any horror movies ever, Gay followed Marty out of the car, and they began to head towards a quiet spot to sit and talk through things. 
As they walked, and in spite of the heat, she felt a chill and she held the blanket close to her chest. It was in this moment that she murmured something. What it was, we're not quite sure. But it proved to be too much for Marty, who fully lost his temper and inexplicably shouted at her that sometimes she made him so mad he wanted to hit her. Immediately regretting saying something so heinous, so out of character, Marty quickly tried to backtrack. And, while he was in the process of trying to explain away the fact that he was being an unconscionable bag of douche, Gay tripped over something unseen. An important ghostly note, but one that was understandably lost in the moment. Which brings me to a segment that we like to call The Ghost Roast. So, I mean, can we talk about Marty for a minute? Look, you steaming pile of moronic fuckwadiness. There's certain things you should never, ever do. One of them is to pop off at the gums with your stupid idea to strike a woman. A woman who, against all odds, inexplicably finds your doofy, temper tantrum throwing ass attractive. Now look, you've you brought her out here to what? Probably ham-fistedly try to stargaze and chill? which will inevitably just get you both caught by the local cops and ticketed for public indecency, and that's the best case scenario? You've convinced her, against her better judgment, not only to be your ride or die, but to also ignore all these road flare, blaming red flags, warning you that you were all about to stumble fuck your way directly into an encounter with a dead woman. And instead of making things better, you basically Sebastian Janikowski'd your foot directly into your mouth and have now caused all of our listeners to leap off your Corvair-ass bandwagon and get sidetracked with how problematic this kind of rhetoric is and how mind-twistingly pervasive it is in our culture that 50 effing years later, it's still something that happens all the time. Guys, don't be a Marty. Gays, you don't deserve a Marty. Ghosts, if you're out there, feel free to haunt the shit out of all the Martys that may or may not be taking a stroll in any parks that your undead spirit is currently haunting. This has been another edition of Ghost Roast. Boom. Ghosted. So, after Marty says something terrible, Gay gets trips, busts her ass in the grass, and he immediately tries to find himself a Doc Brown DeLorean and 55 mile per hour his way back into the future to issue a retraction. But Gay splits up. She's pissed. She's dirty from falling. And suddenly Marty's haircut, the one that he probably spends all that time trying to keep looking good, and that she loved right up until this very moment, looks stupid as hell. So they each go their separate ways. Marty, feeling like a major a-hole, stopped for a moment to lean up against a pine tree. That's when he heard it. His mood, buried somewhere in the wine cellar of his own self-loathing, Marty heard a voice calling to him from just beyond his sight, obscured by the shutters of this moonless night that had suddenly been drawn in tight. It was a voice. It said his name, clear, Marty. In that quiet moment, he felt the voice as much as he heard it, an auditory light that clicked on in the darkening hours of that summer evening that seemed to be suddenly cooling off a little too fast. Unbidden, he walked towards it, his feet seemingly tractor-beaming him straight toward the sound. 
Hello? He called out into the night. More a question than anything. As he squinted his eyes into that dumb face we all make when we're staring into the unknown. The response he got wasn't what he expected. Hey, over here! It was gay. Not in front of him. Not from where he had been called. Not the same black hole tone that pulled him from off that tree into a spiral towards something. Gay was behind him, and she was still pissed. She'd been hiding in the bushes to make him sweat a little for his previous dick move. Did you just call me? Marty said, fear touching the bitter taste buds at the back of his tongue. No, she said back, annoyed, as the kids would say, AF. Then, who? The palpable fear playing across his face and jangling like a janitor's keyring in his tone caused Gay to forget about her own anger. She was scared now and trying to figure out exactly what the hell was happening around them. It was at that moment that the insects around them stopped. They didn't fade out like they do to mark the rising of the dawn. They simply ceased. Like the car and the lights and the motion of a 1960s big body car, they were suddenly snapped off. The silence rang around them, mute humming that amplified the sound of their own suddenly bass drumming hearts. Across the field, near a young pine tree, they both saw it at the same time. Who is that? Gay asked, though neither wanted an answer to her rhetorical question. A woman, running, her legs spinning silently in the night, illuminated, irradiated almost as she ran through the air. Her feet were not on the ground. Marty's jaw, however, had crash-landed directly under the dirt in front of him. Without a further look, the silently sprinting woman simply slipped through a crack in the night and was gone. The two shivered, suddenly cold as the riptide of realization grabbed at them like a wave going back out. The nighttime band of obnoxiously horny insects was suddenly playing again. Kay grabbed onto Marty and they both rushed back to the car, eyes wide and minds reeling from all that they had seen. But who was she, this woman in white? Why was she running? And why had she attempted to intervene in Marty and Gay's attempted reconciliation and ensuing fight? The tale states that these two were not the first to see something at this location in Antelope Park, and they certainly weren't the last. I myself have only one encounter worthy of mentioning for this particular tale. Once, when I was post-tween, but barely 14 years old, as my homie Britney Spears would say, not a girl, not yet a woman. My mother took us out to Antelope Park at night. We smashed some Godfather's pizza in the back seat, and feeling emboldened by the golden crust goodness coursing through our young veins, my brother and I went out into the fields behind the park looking for something, anything. What we found? A hot load of nothing. Which is honestly just fine. Because I would certainly have peed all 20 ounces of Diet Mountain Dew directly down my leg and left my brother to fend for himself immediately with the goodwill purchased lacrosse rackets that my mother had given us as protection from the trunk. However, here's where our story gets really interesting. 
sad, dark, murdery, but really fascinating. If these two were really driving a Corvair and they were going to be graduating from Southeast the next year as the story states, that would put the time frame sometime after 1960 when Corvairs were first released. Now Southeast, it opened in 1955, so that would also fit the timeline for this event being somewhere in the mid-60s, early 70s, somewhere in that nature unless these kids had been gifted a brand new Corvair. So let's jump back a little bit to December 14th, 1955. Same park, same place. One year into his job as the head forester for Lincoln Parks and Recreation, a man named Daryl Parker kissed his wife Nancy goodbye and headed out to try to get a few things done for his job before the incoming snowstorm looked to hit the town. As he closed the door, heading out to a day as cold as the night was warm for Marty and Gay, he doesn't know the real storm has nothing to do with the cold front moving in. When he returned, he found Nancy dead. She'd been bound and she'd been raped. Nancy had been murdered. The brutality and raw senselessness of this moment must have set a blowtorch to the soul of this mild-mannered, quiet man. Beside himself, he quickly alerted the local authorities. These authorities proceeded to promptly fuck up the entire investigation in every direction possible. They stumbled, they bungled, they botched, they blew. In need of a conviction for this heinous crime, one that was at the time currently rippling through the very prairie soil bedrock of the then 100,000 person town like some kind of bile inducing earthquake, the police latched onto Daryl Parker himself. They slapped him into a windowless, gaggingly dry little room where he was kept without food, without water or decency during a brutal interrogation process with a polygraph expert. At some point, Daryl broke. He was weary, desperate, his head spinning like Linda Blair in The Exorcist. He confessed to something that he didn't do. They had him. Their man. He immediately recanted his confession, attempting to unlight this fuse that was now burning perilously close to the dynamite. But it didn't work. Daryl went to prison. He got life, just like that. Alive but not living, he did his best to continue fighting. While he was inside, continually petitioning for release and exoneration, a model prisoner and the penitentiary's greenhouse attendant, the real killer was still on the outside. Eventually, Darrell was paroled in 1970 after it was deemed that his confession was indeed coerced. And then, in 1975, in the small town, in a medium town, that is the Havelock District in Lincoln, another woman was shot and killed. Her name was Marianne Mitzner, and she bore a striking resemblance to Nancy Parker. They found her murdered. The real killer? A lifelong criminal and confessed serial murderer, though many of his claims were never confirmed, who was named Wesley Peary. Peary, you see, had no regard for human life. The kind of true-life monster that isn't under the bed, or in the closet, or going bump in the night, but that runs roughshod over life and humanity with the kind of unconscientious ease that leaves you staring 
up at the unmoving ceiling fan into the hours of the night with blank eyes and lip-biting worry. The scariest part about Mr. Peary? He was human. And once he began talking, he couldn't seem to stop himself. After forcing his lawyers to sign an agreement that their conversations would only be released upon his death, his death row confessions in 1978 would prove pivotal to the final, exhausting end to Daryl Parker's story. Amongst a slew of his own ghastly confessions, Peary claimed that he had, in fact, been the one responsible for Nancy Parker's untimely demise. With painstaking detail, he laid out what had happened on that day, leaving no doubt that he was, in fact, the one who had committed the crimes. Peary died of a heart attack in prison in 1988. Justice for Nancy was left unserved. However, the lawyers did release the tapes of their discussions as quickly as was possible, and soon Daryl's fight, long burning low like coals in a fire pit, were reignited. Daryl Parker, at age 80, received a full exoneration and 500 grand from the state of Nebraska in a wrongful conviction lawsuit. In 2012, Nearly 57 years after Nancy's life was snatched up by the calloused hands of a callous man, Daryl Parker was able to find his peace. On the day of his exoneration, he went back to Antelope Park for the first time as an innocent man, and the last time as a man who'd known that he was innocent all along. So is this horror story the real reason behind the woman in white? Is Nancy Parker still waiting for her justice the way that Daryl Parker finally got his. Perhaps. Was it the crass, ill-spoken error of a threat between a man to a woman that had led her to make an appearance that night and scare the good holy hell out of Marty and Gay? What would her 40 time be like while she was running if she's so fast that she can literally sprint through the air? We may never know these answers, but we do know these questions. And that, for now, is how we will remember Nancy Parker, the lady in white. So if you ever find yourself on the bike paths around Antelope Park, or if you're inside the park chaperoning a wild-eyed, overzealous little one who's performing death-defying leaps from monkey bar to the slide, catch your breath for a moment. Breathe in the air. Let your eyes look at the place where the tales may be true and let your feet touch the ground since hers cannot. You are here for now, but the woman in white will be here for always. As usual, I'd like to encourage all of you to send me messages, comment on the Facebook page or on the Twitter page. Let's talk this through and try to figure out what's going on. Do you think that the woman in white is in fact Nancy Parker? Or is it some other specter, some other ghoul? Have you seen anything strange at Antelope Park? Or were you just out there screaming into the night holding a lacrosse racket like my brother and I? Thank you for tuning in. This has been the Ghosts of Lincoln Podcast. <laughs>